Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. If you would, take your Bible and join me in the book of Titus. And uh, tonight we bring to an end our discussion of the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And uh, this is a book that uh, we are working our way through at the seminary uh, on Wednesdays through our chapel services. And so actually, uh, tonight you will get a brief preview of the text that I will preach the next time we gather on a Wednesday, which will be uh, not next Wednesday when we are away on Spring break, although we'll be, I'll be here. A number of our students will be gone, but then the following week when they return. And the text I want to read with you is chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, which I'm becoming more and more convinced with each passing day is an essential passage to the health of the church. If we genuinely want to restore spiritual health and vitality uh, to our churches, we could do no better than to take very seriously what we read in these eight verses. And this is what Paul writes to Titus, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the Younger women, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers. Good, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men. Let me jump ahead. I think the one who exhorts the young men is the older men. Just as the older women are mentoring the younger women, the older men are mentoring the younger men. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And we'll come back and walk through these verses uh, at the end of our study. Look at page one then, Titus. A really easy book, I think, to capture its theme because it is a call to sound doctrine and good works. Uh, the phrase good works occurs repeatedly uh, throughout the book. The emphasis upon sound doctrine occurs throughout the book. It's only three chapters, very short. So again and again and again, this kind of dual track of right belief, right behavior, sound doctrine, good works, is the themes that unite the book of Titus that weave it together. Thus, its theme is balancing theology and good works. We'll see that the author is the Apostle Paul, the recipient, a man named Titus, whom he describes as my true child in our common faith, who we will see was on the island of Crete, date of writing about A.D. 66, just before 2 Timothy, probably just after 1 Timothy. Place of writing, we cannot be sure, modern Turkey, 
uh, Asia Minor would be a, a reasonable guess. And what are some major emphases that you find in these three chapters? Well, there are a number of things. This really is, as I said in our first study of this book at the seminary, a bargain basement letter. You get a lot crammed into three chapters. It is really a deal in terms of a good comprehensive study of the basics of the Christian faith. So, God is Savior. Qualification for leaders. Sound doctrine. How we are to confront and silence false teachers. Uh, the roles of men and women. The coming of Christ. The doctrine of regeneration. And good works. These are themes that unite the book of Titus and tie it together. If you look on page 2, I've given you a structural chart again that says at the top that the thrust of the book is to maintain sound doctrine and good works. Uh, we see that in the uh, first chapter, God's Word has appeared. In chapter 2, God's grace has appeared. And in chapter 3, God's kindness and love has appeared. And so again, God's Word has appeared both in addressing leaders and Enemies, God's grace, kindness, love has appeared. This is a specific word for the followers of Jesus Christ. And so a purpose statement for the book. Paul wrote to Titus, his son in the faith, in order to instruct him in establishing churches that would be properly governed and active in maintaining both sound doctrine and good works. And key words that we find in the book are faith or faithful. Good work, sound doctrine, Savior. And as I've said earlier, I really think that Titus uh, would provide a wonderful manual for church planting. If you're trying to figure out what would be a good strategy when you go into a place to start a church, plant a church, build a great, vibrant, New Testament kind of church, I don't think any book would be of more value than the book of Titus. And I had never seen that before, but having studied it now for several months and preparing these various studies, I become very, very convinced that it would be absolutely foundational and essential to a good strategy for church planting. Well, look at page three then, and let's walk through the background material very quickly. Author, the author of Titus is Paul the Apostle. The conclusion is supported by the text itself, chapter 1, verse 1, the internal evidence of theology and language, and the external testimony of the uh, majority of the church. It was absolutely overwhelming. Indeed, no one ever marshaled an argument against Pauline authorship of Titus or First and Second Timothy until the modern era. It was never, ever questioned at any time. And so we just simply note there that the evidence, I think, is, is sufficient. We'll simply move on to the date and place of writing. The historical references of this book, like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, do fall outside the book of Acts and between what we have now established as Paul's two Roman imprisonments. He is imprisoned at the the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28. Then he will write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. We believe he was released uh, at least for two, maybe three more years. He conducts further missionary work in Asia Minor goes perhaps all the way over to Spain, is then rearrested somewhere, taken back to Rome. This time he's not under house arrest. This time, as we saw last week, he's in the Mamertine dungeon. This time, uh, like the first time, 
He does not think he's going to be released. He believes he's going to be executed. And so Titus then, and the material that we find in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and leading up to Titus, would all fit in between these two imprisonments. And so we've done something similar to this before, but we'll do it again tonight. The events between the two imprisonments may be reconstructed from various information throughout the pastoral epistles. And here is a ten-step possibility. Number one. Paul was released from his first imprisonment somewhere around A.D. 62 or 63 from the imprisonment of Acts 28.30. Secondly, in this scenario, rather than going immediately west, he went back east. He journeyed to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He went to Ephesus. He made a trip to Colossae, a city he had never seen before, and perhaps he did this in the spring and autumn of the same year. Thirdly, after leaving Timothy in Ephesus... He traveled to Macedonia, where he spent the winter. Number four, in A.D. 64, he revisited Asia Minor on his way to Spain, which we learned was something he had wanted to do uh, as he moved toward the end of his ministry. Then number five, he returned from Spain, A.D. 65 to 66, and perhaps spent some time on the island of Crete, though he was not able to stay long enough uh, to put everything in order. Number six, top of page four, sometime later, uh, he departed again for Asia Minor. He left Titus behind. This may be around A.D. 66. Number seven, shortly after his arrival in Asia Minor, Paul sat down and wrote a letter back to Titus, first of all giving him instruction about what to do, and also, as we will see at the end of the book, uh, telling him he would send some relief help later that would free him up to come to Nicopolis. Later we learn from Second Timothy that Paul, while he was in prison, had sent Timothy to Dalmatia, and so he had continued to move Titus from place to place to place as a troubleshooter for the various areas where churches were struggling and where churches had been planted. Then number eight. Paul spent the winter of A.D. 66 or 67 in Macedonia in the city of Nicopolis, where Titus was to rejoin him. Paul then was perhaps rearrested at Nicopolis or somewhere in the vicinity, sent back to Rome. And then number 10, near the time of his death under Nero's reign in circa A.D. 67-68, Paul's last letter was written, that being the letter of 2 Timothy. So you can see kind of where we think Titus would fall into place there at number 7, thus after 1 Timothy, but before 2 Timothy. So from this brief chronology, we can project, and it is only a projection, that Paul wrote Titus from Asia Minor, perhaps in the summer or autumn of Circa. And by the way, the C before that, my wife asked me the other day, said, what does that little C mean in front of A.D.? It means about. It's a shorthand for Circa, which means about in the proximity of. And so Circa or C means about A.D. 66, which just means we can't say for certain it was A.D. 66, just that it was in that general time frame. Destination then. This is easy. The letter by Paul was written to Titus, who was laboring to organize the local assembly of believers on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. Crete was a resort place. This is where you went to have vacation time. So it was a very tough place to plant a church. It was an island about 146 miles long, immersed in pagan philosophy, located in the Mediterranean near the Aegean Sea. It was the mythical birthplace of Zeus. 
and the legendary Minotaur, a half-bull, half-human monster. And so it was a city uh, steeped in paganism. As I'll mention in just a moment, I also think, based upon some extra-biblical writings, that probably there was a strong uh, tradition of emperor worship there. And that may explain why. The word Savior occurs again and again and again and again in the book of Titus. He was counteracting uh, and uh, contravening this idea of the emperor as the Savior. No, God is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Very interestingly, uh, calling God as Savior or Jesus Savior occurs right at six times, three times of God, Three times of the Lord Jesus. So there's kind of almost an intentional uh, dual emphasis upon the saviorhood, both of God, God the Father, and also the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what was the occasion then and the purpose of Titus? Apparently, Titus was appointed by the apostle to organize the churches in Crete. How many? We don't know. Paul seems to have evangelized the island but could not stay long enough to develop local leadership. Because this was lacking very clearly in chapter 1, verse 5, and false teachers were infiltrating the scattered flocks, Titus was summoned to temporarily remain on Crete to set in order the things which are lacking and to ordain leaders, elders, in every city. Thus, in the midst of little, if any, local leadership and the encroachment of false teachers, Paul and Titus apparently discussed the task of organizing the churches when they were together. But the letter affirmed Paul's instruction telling uh, Titus both what to do and also what to say to them in terms of just basic foundational instruction for the growth and the maturity of the church. Now, what about this guy named Titus? I had uh, some real fun when I preached on this at the seminary and shared with folks that really you could draw a modern-day comparison between Titus and Timothy, and to Paige Patterson and Danny Aiken. Titus was mean. He was tough and, and hard and, and not very nice, a lot like Dr. Patterson. Whereas Timothy was kind and sweet and easygoing. In fact, as we saw last week, uh, he had to drink a little wine because he had upset stomach. Paul had to encourage him, you know, to hang in there. You know, don't let those Mino folks at Ephesus run over you. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like that, just sweet and nice and sugary and easygoing. But uh, in all seriousness, Titus was Paul's spiritual hitman. He was scared of nothing and nobody. When Timothy probably got run out of Corinth, Paul said, all right, all right, you want to do that to my, my young son in the ministry? Titus, go take care of him. And he did. Read Second, uh, Second Corinthians. And so now he's got Crete. A bunch of people, as he says in chapter 1, are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. A bunch of troublemakers. All right, you want it, you get it. He leaves Titus there to fix things. As though Titus was no doubt a godly, godly man. Titus was courageous. Titus had great convictions and he was not going to be intimidated. You were not going to stare him down on Wednesday night church conference. It was not going to happen. And so what does he say about him? Well, here's what we can glean if we put a portrait, uh, a composite portrait together from the New Testament. Though he does not appear by name in Acts... Titus is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament. And note very interestingly, 
2 Corinthians 13, 7-6, 7-13, 7-14, 8-6, 8-16, 12-18, twice. So he's very prominent in 2 Corinthians. It appears in Galatians 2, 1 and 3, and then 2 Timothy 4, and then also here in Titus. Now, Titus was a convert from a non-Jewish heritage early in Paul's ministry. Whereas Timothy had a Jewish mother and grandmother, most speculate a Gentile father. Titus was a Gentile through and through. And so Titus appears apparently first with Paul at the Jerusalem Council, if you equate Acts 15 with Galatians 2. And he brings him there as proof that one does not need to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. You need to be saved simply by grace through faith. He would have Timothy circumcised so as to make him uh, more uh, readily uh, receptive as a missionary and evangelist of Jewish people. Titus, full-blown Gentile, it ain't happening. Because circumcision, works, have absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. And so Titus becomes something of a test case in the early history of the church. Later, Titus' work is related to the Corinthians as he appears as an emissary to Paul concerning the Corinthians' reaction to 1 Corinthians and as the bearer of the second letter to them. We, we do know that Titus had a specific burden for the spiritual welfare of the Corinthians. And then there's little information in the New Testament with respect to Titus. Between about A.D. 56 when he delivers 2 Corinthians to Corinth, and A.D. 66, now we find him laboring on Crete. So we really don't know uh, for about a decade where he is, what he's doing. The most distinct biographical note concerning Titus was written by Paul when he said that they, quote, walked in the same spirit and in the same steps. Titus may have rejoined Paul in Nicopolis where they spent the winter of A.D. 66 to 67. He perhaps accompanied Paul to Rome when Paul was arrested, 2 Timothy 4.10. And the final biographical entry notes that Titus was now in Dalmatia as Paul anticipated his execution. And so Titus was again a church planter. He was a troubleshooter. He was someone that had been led to Christ by Paul because Paul says uh, of him in chapter 1, verse 4, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, the same exact phrase he uses for Timothy, which again I think is an indication that Paul had been involved in leading both of these men to Christ. In other words, if you were to ask who in the life of Paul meant more to him than virtually anyone else, I think it would be very easy to say number one was Timothy, And number two was Titus. And I think they had a very special relationship with Paul leading from their conversion to his ability to assign them to very important assignments and tasks uh, as the church was growing in the first century. Now, why did he need to leave Titus in Crete? And why did he need to write this letter back to Titus who was in Crete? Well, here's the purpose. It is likely that the church on Crete suffered from two sources. One visiting Judaizers who were mixing law and grace, and secondly, ignorant Christians who abused the grace of God and turned it into license. That is, they became immoral and they threw off any type of restraints whatsoever. Paul then had several purposes in mind when he wrote, number one, remind Titus of his work of reorganizing the church and appointing elders, 
bishops, pastors, overseers. Secondly, to warn him about false teachers, which he does at the beginning and at the end. Third, to encourage him in pastoring the different kind of people. It should be kinds of people in the church. For example, how do you deal with older men? How do you deal with older women? How do you deal with younger women? How do you deal with younger men? How do you deal with slaves? And so he deals with at least those distinct groups, especially in chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 10. So how do you minister to these different kinds of people in the church? Number four, to emphasize the true meaning of grace in the life of the Christian. And the theme of grace dominates these three chapters. Again, whether you are a Judaizer on one end or someone that had moved into license and uh, had thrown off all restraint on the other, you didn't understand the grace of God. A Judaizer doesn't understand that grace is what saves. But someone that has moved into immorality doesn't understand that the grace of God should never promote you to become immoral or to become lax in the way you live, but rather it is the great motivation and impetus to be godly and to be holy and to grow in Christ's likeness. And so they were misunderstanding God's grace on both extremes. Then number five, he explains how to deal with church troublemakers. And number six, he encourages believers to look for the coming of Christ. What then are some of the emphases we find in uh, this particular book? Well, there are several things that he says. First of all, the word Savior occurs six times, as I mentioned earlier. And very interestingly, there's almost an exact parallel. In fact, there is an exact parallel between God is Savior three times, Christ is Savior three times. Secondly, good works is a major emphasis being talked about in 116. 3.5, and 3.14. In fact, the concept of good works dominates chapter 3. Thus, Paul is trying to say to Titus and to those at Crete, saved by grace means saved unto good works. Now, that word unto is crucial. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto or for good works. Martin Luther said, We are not saved by faith plus works, but we are saved by a faith that does work. And to Luther, uh, to Calvin, to the Reformers, I think to Paul and Peter and and the Apostle John, the idea that you would have faith and be saved by grace, but it would not usher in to good works, would never have entered their mind. In other words, this idea that you can be genuinely saved, never repent, be genuinely saved, never exercise and uh, give evidence of good works, they would not know what you are talking about. In fact, what they would say is, you're talking about a lost person. It doesn't matter what they say. Uh, Building upon the very simple and concise statement of Jesus, uh, you shall know them by their fruits. And here, I think Paul would say, you will know them by their good works that are not for salvation, but that flow from salvation. So, Christian doctrine and Christian living both are to be sound. There ought to be a life of godliness, godliness, not worldliness. And God's grace leads a person to live a godly life. And perhaps the key verse of the book is maybe 3.8, although I think you could also make an argument for 2.11. So I'll read it first. You might put that in the margin. Say, eh, there's a little debate here. But if you look at 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, 
to all men, if you just take the next phrase, teaching us, deny ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. I think you could make a pretty good argument for that as the theme verse. But then chapter 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying. And these things I write to you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should what? Be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Note the order now. Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain their good works. And so a closing theme. The theme of Titus is a call to sound doctrine and good works for the church of the Lord Jesus. Passages occur in this short epistle concerning the qualifications and responsibilities of pastors, 1, 5 through 9. Uh, the ethics of uh, the believer, 2, 1 through 10. The return of Christ, 2, 11 through 14. And the nature of salvation, chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. And so on page 7, I've given you a detailed outline uh, of the entire book. Four major movements. First of all, in 1, 1 through 9, sound doctrine and the church's leadership. Secondly, uh, sound doctrine and false worship, 110 through 16. Thirdly, sound doctrine, the lives of certain groups, 2, 1 through 11. And then finally, sound doctrine in everyday life, 3, 1 through 15, where he talks about how do you live in your community, in the church, your personal conduct, and then a final closing word of greeting and encouragement. So with that then, look over on page 8, and we'll take our time uh, for the rest of the evening and simply walk through what does the Bible say about the role of men and women in the church. We live in a day where there's a great deal of confusion about this, uh, especially, for example, in North Carolina, where there are people who do not have a basic biblical understanding of what the role of men and women is to be in the church. Now, in one sense, it's quite simple. The structure that God has established in the home is paralleled 100% by the structure he's established in the church. Now, let me make something clear. That does not roll over into the realm of government. Whereas it is crystal clear that God has ordained three institutions. Government, the home, church. It's also crystal clear that what you find as the governmental structure in the home, husbands, fathers giving godly, sacrificial, loving, servant leadership, and wives and mothers yielding and submitting to the leadership of that husband as they likewise then minister in particular to the children, you find the same exact pattern. I mean the same exact pattern in the church. And indeed, I don't know why we neglect, uh, as we often do, Titus 2... One through eight, because where we have a lot of debate today, a lot of discussion today about, well, just what is God's role for women in the church? He tells you. I mean, he absolutely lays it out with crystal clear clarity in chapter two, in particular, verses three, four and five for women and in two, one and two and six through eight for men. Now. I do have a, a theory here that I think probably is almost certainly correct. I think one of the reasons that we neglect this text is that we are cowards. We're just chicken. 
And because we have, and I'm not here tonight to make anybody mad at me, okay? I'm not out here tonight to get you mad, to go out and cut my tires or tear up my windshield wipers or anything like that. I'm just here tonight as a delivery boy. But when you go into Titus 2, uh, 3 through 5, you can have a really difficult time making an argument that God's most noble calling for a woman is not anything other than being a homemaker, a wife, and a mother. And given that the workforce now today is almost, if not more than 50% female, my goodness, you're just going to get kind of in some serious, serious trouble if you walk into this area. On a couple of occasions over the last few years, after I had worked through this text and, and studied it, I decided in some different churches to preach on Titus 2, 1 through 8, and just shoot from the hip and just lay it out like it, it is. And even churches that have had me back several times and that basically give every evidence of loving me got very, very, very quiet when I walked through these verses. And a number of women that I know love me came up to me and said, well, I know what it says. What's the next word? But. And then they tried to rationalize why their particular lifestyle did not match up with this text. Now, let me be clear before I move on into the verses. Those who have uh, been abandoned by a man those who are single parents, um, I have enormous respect for and understand that they have pressures and uh, difficulties and responsibilities that make it very difficult to do this. I also will submit to you that if the church was being what the church is supposed to be, they could do this. We should be taking care of uh, single parents uh, in terms, especially when they're mothers. We really should. I mean, it, it causes me all sorts of discomfort to think through where, we, where, 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 where should we really be in terms of how we spend our money, raise our money, allocate our money. I mean, should there be in our church, for example, a, a single uh, parent mother in particular who would like to stay home and rear her children that we should not as a church try to make it possible for her to do so? I think the answer is yes, we should. Now, she's obviously never going to become wealthy and rich. But is it the case that we could, along with family, if she has family that can help, this is now back to what you find in 1 Timothy 5, be stepping up to the plate to make that possible? Well, I think the answer is yes. And see, we're not even talking about where you've got, you know, a, a husband and a wife, and you hear this, this argument, well, I have no choice. I have to work. Folks, without, again, being ugly to anybody, that is just simply not true. That is not true. That is absolutely, unequivocally not true. You choose to do what you choose to do. And you say, well, I don't have enough money. You have enough money to feed your face, put a roof over your head, clothes on your back. If you are not, you know, hey, you may have to just surrender all sorts of things. This is free, and I'm gonna get, actually I'm going to get to the text. I really am. Had a man in our uh, second church that came to us and wanted us to loan him, what was it, $15,000. Because he was in great debt. And so our uh, staff with our deacons got together and we talked about it. And we said, you know, uh, if, if he's really deserving, we should. Uh, and in fact, maybe we should just give it to him. 
But as I said earlier, you don't just give anybody money, no strings attached. So what we decided was we had a man in our church that was a very, very fine accountant and a very wise manager of his own money. And so we made a deal with this man that we would indeed give him the money with no expectation for it being repaid. We would give it to him. But he had to bring himself under absolute 100% submission to this other deacon who could adjudicate in every way what he did with his money. So he agreed at first. So this deacon of ours named Bill got down with this man and found out that he had, a, at that time, about a $65 a month cable television bill. He said, well, that's easy. That's gone. And out. We, we got there. We saved 650 about $800. He said, well, wait a minute. I, I, I like cable television. He said, well, I like it too. But I can afford it. You can't. It's out. He then found out that this man who had two teenage sons had not one, not two, not three, but four car payments. And he said, we got good news here. You're going to sell all four of your cars, get out of debt there, and either ride the bus or maybe from that you can buy an old car that will be sufficient for your... He said, well, but I like my new car. He said, I like my new car too, but you can't afford it. So... Out go the car. Hey, by the way, just think how much insurance he's began to save as well on that. Well, all of a sudden, we're just knocking off thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And guess what? He wasn't willing to do that. Did we give him the money? No. Should we have given him the money? No. All of those things I just mentioned are wonderful things. But they're luxuries that you may or may not be able to afford. They're not necessities. My point is, if we are going to be the church, we will at least meet the necessities of our people, and in particular, those like the widow or the single parent. Well, that's just a free thing to think about. Now look at very quickly what God's assignment is. God starts off as he should, uh, and Paul does, with older men. And you'll note there's seven characteristics there. I'm not going to unwrap all of them. I'll just make kind of a passing comment along the way. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you. So what's that in contrast to? Verse 16. Speaking of false teachers, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. While they are abominable, they're disobedient. They are disqualified for every good work. But in contrast, as for you, speak, present imperative, word of command, present tense, continually speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So he begins by, it is absolutely foundational that you know and that you teach what you believe. Growing out of that then, Here is what is foundational to sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, which means balanced, possessed of good judgment. They're reverent, which means they treat those things which are sacred, sacred. They have a a spiritual orientation, not that they go around doing Gregorian chants, but they are characterized as spiritual-oriented men. They're temperate. 
Again, the idea here is along the same lines, very close to the word sober. They have self-control. They, they have good judgment. They, they are under control when it comes to their passions. They're sound in the faith, which means they know what they believe and why they believe. They, they are loving. And also, they are patient. Now, there is the character of an older Godly man. And Paul says, that's what I expect you to try to cultivate in the older men, age-wise, in the churches there on Crete. Now he then says, secondly, God has an assignment for older women. And again, he begins, first of all, with who they must be before he moves to then what they are to do. So verse 3, but the older women likewise, in, in the same way that older men are to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in the faith, love and patience, in the same way older women... That they be reverent. That they have a spiritual orientation. It's, it's a word that was used often of how someone would conduct themselves in a temple. So there's this spiritual mindedness that simply characterizes who they are. They're reverent, spiritually minded in behavior. They're not slanderers. In other words, they have control of their tongue. They're not given to much wine, literally not addicted to wine. And of course, as I've argued previously, the best way not to be addicted to wine is to stay away from wine. And they're to be teachers of good things. Now you say, all right, what kind of good things? I'm glad you asked. He has, I think, in mind particularly what is point number three. God has an assignment for younger women. The good things that the older women are to teach are these kind of... What does it say? Verse 4. That they admonish. Who's doing the admonishing? The older women are admonishing, encouraging, teaching, directing the younger women to do what? Well, seven things. First of all, to love their husbands. Very interesting. The only time in the Bible, the only time, that women are told to love their husbands. Now, I think we know that that's what you're supposed to do anyway. Men are told repeatedly, like six times in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, you love your wife. And I have a theory about that too. I think men are naturally selfish and narcissistic. They love themselves. I think women are much more inclined to give of themselves to others than are men. I think the most selfish, scum-sucking dog on the earth is an unregenerate male and some of the saved males aren't much better, just make me sick sometimes. Almost, well, no, I don't want to become a female. There's too many problems there. But anyway, it's irritate me. It's irritate the sap out of me. And so women, on the other hand, tend not to be that way. But you've got false teaching. John MacArthur has even argued that there was an early feminist movement that had reared its head in Corinth, that perhaps had made its way to Crete. And so you now got these women, because they're free in Christ, throwing off all restraint. He says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you older ladies, you'll get the ear of the younger ladies. Here's what you need to tell them. Love your husbands. Love your children. That's interesting. Something that is basically intuitive to a woman, he says, you need to teach them. Although it may be this. He's not so much teaching them to love their children as he's teaching them how to love their children. You see, sometimes when you're young, your emotions get in the way. In fact, sometimes young mothers can be just dumb as a brick. That they really can. I mean, having been in ministry now for goodness gracious, 28 years, uh, we had a lady in one of our churches. Her daughter, I think, was four. 
her mother had still never, ever, 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 ever left her child alone. She would not take her to the nursery. She always brought her in church. And if she was screaming and causing all sorts of, she'd have to get up and leave. But she would never, ever leave that child with anybody else. I want to tell you something. That ain't healthy. That is not good. Heck, when we had our twins, man, we was dumping them, them dogs off two weeks into it. I mean, we were, we were like trying to take, you know, names and, you know, who wants to babysit? You know, who wants, we had to, see, people like, I found this out. People love to babysit twins. They won't babysit that third one. I mean, it's just something about twins. They, there's just some kind of, I think, novelty about it. But, uh, but the third one, we had a hard time. We viewed that to farm two one way and one the other. I mean, try to get a package deal with three. It just got really hard. And sometimes when you're a young mother, oh, your heart's in the right place, but your mind is so ill-formed to do what really is necessary. But an older woman that's been through it again and again and again and again, she understands. She knows what's crucial and what's not. What really matters and what, hey, just let that one go. Because everything should not be raised to a crisis level. So it may be that what he's saying is that you teach them how. That's the, that's the thrust of it, to love their children. And then you teach them what? To be discreet, chaste, morally pure, homemakers. I didn't put it in there. He put it in there. Teach them to be homemakers. Good. New King James says, obedient to their own husbands. Actually, the better translation is submissive. The same word. A submissive. To their own husbands. Notice to their own husbands. A wife is not called to be submissive to every man, by the way. Just to make it crystal clear, my wife Charlotte uh, is called by God to be submissive to the spiritual leadership in her life, which would be the leadership of this church and me. She is not called to be submissive to every man. And that is not in the Bible. That is so foreign from Scripture as to be utterly heretical. So submissive to your own husband. Why? So that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And then finally he says, and God has an assignment for younger men. Likewise, exhort. And the implication, actually, it's implied in the verb form exhort. You exhort, Titus. But I think it would not be stretching the text at all to say if older women are instructing younger women, then older men are instructing who? Younger men. It's almost chiastic in its basic framework, and those of you that studied seminary know what that would mean. So you've got older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And so the, it loops around. And so here's what the older men should teach the younger men. There it is again. You be sober-minded. Be balanced. Know how to exercise good judgment. Be wise. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern, a, 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 an example of good works in doctrine, showing integrity. There's that word again. Everybody gets it. Reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent, that is one who is an unbeliever, perhaps even hostile toward the faith, may be ashamed. Having nothing evil to say of you. In other words, you conduct yourself in such a way that you have a winsomeness about your personality with lost people. Uh, you have a, uh, a character of life and an integrity that causes others to take notice of the difference in who you are. 
These last two days, one of my good friends, Ben Young from Second Baptist Church Houston, has spoke to us. And I don't know anyone that's doing a better job of reaching lost persons in this generation by just doing what he taught us, trying to understand them, trying to love them, and walking with absolute impeccable integrity. In other words, the, the character of his life gives him the foundation to reach out with the gospel. And I tell you what, in the day in which we live, I don't know of anything that would be more valuable than we would begin to adopt this model for our churches. Older women teaching younger women. Older men teaching younger men. There are a lot of older men in our churches who think, you know, I'm kind of through. I'm past my prime. Uh, I'm over the hill. I'm basically ready to check out. I'm going to pull back into retirement. Where in the rip is that coming from? You should in many ways be right now exercising more profound influence in the body of Christ than at any other time in your life because as an older, godly, mature man, you have so much to give younger men who are looking for role models. How many men do you know that have never had a godly role model because they came out of a broken home? Or a young lady that's never had a godly role model because she came out of a broken home and mom was frazzled, mom was running to and fro. No, this is the day. This is the time where older godly men and older godly women can take younger men, younger women, and I'll extend it and then be through, children, both boys and girls, and model for them what it means to walk with Jesus and be a man or a woman of God. And I will tell you what, if we will do that, I believe we'll see some incredible things take place in our church. And indeed, this is the very foundation that Paul laid for Titus when it came to how do you get new, young churches going and moving in the right direction. You find those older godly men and older godly women and put them to work training, mentoring, discipling those younger ones that they might grow up to be just like them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this pattern. I thank you so much for what you call older men and older women to do, as well as younger men and younger women. And Lord, I, I know this, boy, this is countercultural. This goes against the grain. But bottom line, we don't have to have the approval of the world. We need your approval. And bottom line, we don't need to listen to the world. We need to listen to your word. And so help us to be radical in our devotion and commitment to Scripture. And help us, Lord, to do our very, very best to make it possible for older men, younger men, older women and younger women to look like what we find here in Titus 2, 1 through 8. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we will move to the little book of Philemon. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.